You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Um, good to be with you. Glad you're here. If you're a guest with us, I want to welcome you. My name is Jordan. I'm one of our pastors here at Redeemer, and uh, super glad that you're here. Last week, we kicked off a, a sermon series studying the book of Mark. So we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark for most of this year, um, maybe beyond this year. We'll see how long it takes us. But there's really a question that we're asking as we study the Gospel of Mark, and it's this, who is this Jesus? Who is Jesus? And we said last week that we really have two prayers as a church this year as we study Mark's gospel. And the first part of that prayer is that we would re-encounter Jesus afresh, that we would experience his grace, we would be reminded of his nature and who he is and what he's done for us in a way that would stir our affections for him anew this year. And so that's what we're praying. I want to ask you to pray that with us as we study Mark. And we're also praying that this would be an evangelistic year for us as a church, that as we are re-encountering Christ, as we're considering who he is, receiving his grace and his message afresh for us, that we would hold him out for others in our lives and that we would say, this is who Jesus is and he's really amazing and he offers transformative grace to people who believe upon him and turn to him. And, and so we would hold that out to those in our lives. And so that's what we're praying. And so we kicked off this study last week and we we said that Mark's gospel was an ancient bios of Jesus, an ancient bios. What we mean by that is it's not a biography in the way that we would think of biographies today. It's not interested in all the little details of, um, of someone's life, but it's interested in the most essential actions and words of a figure who changed the world. That's what an ancient bios was, the most essential actions and words of someone who changed the world. And Mark very much wants us to understand that Jesus changed the world. That's why... He's writing to give us the news, the gospel of King Jesus, the Son of God. We looked at that last week, that the gospel is first and foremost news. It's not some theoretical concept. It's, it's a story about something that God has really done in the world that has forever changed things for those who believe upon Jesus as King. And so this morning, we're going to pick up on the heels of the story of John the Baptist that we looked at last week, John who was preparing the way for Jesus. And one of the things that we saw from John's ministry is that people in Jesus' day were clearly hungry for God. I mean, there, was, there were people, the text told us last week, that were coming. Mark makes the point, he says, all of Judea was coming out to be baptized by John. I mean, clearly people were hungry for God. People were coming out in droves to be baptized. And these were both religious and irreligious people who were coming out. They were clearly, there was something happening in Jesus' day where people were hungry and ready for God to act and God to move and God to speak. And I want you to know that I believe that I think there is something similar happening today in our world. I believe that in our context, in our here and now, that people are hungry as well. I believe that people are hungry first and foremost for truth. I think people are hungry right now for something real something transcendent, something that they can root their lives in. I believe that we've been disappointed over the last couple of years, maybe by the elites and the enlightened in our day. I think that people have been disillusioned, if not outright disgusted, by politics and politicians, a bit disillusioned there. I, I, I believe that people have been disoriented and even let down over the last two years by science and technology. I believe that people have been divided and malformed by things like social media that promise to make us more connected and make our lives better. And actually, we're realizing that it's tearing us apart. 
I believe that this secular pursuit and dream of a better world through science and technology and humanism is proving to be a failed experiment, that we've been living it for the last two years and we've realized, I think this thing has failed. I think that's what's happened. I believe that people are hungry for truth, whether they realize it or not, for something real and powerful to turn to and to trust in. I believe that also people are thirsty and they're thirsty for grace. I think that there are parched souls all around us, maybe even in this room, that are thirsty for grace. Let me tell you what grace does. Grace disarms. Grace causes you to put your dukes down, you know, when you encounter it. It disarms. Grace welcomes. Grace loves. Grace transforms. Grace restores people and relationships. Grace says, I see you, and I'm not disappointed in you, and I'm not put off by your brokenness or your inadequacies but I welcome you. And I believe that in our world over the last two years, tensions have been high. The climate has been hostile. It's been an us against them kind of mentality and that people are starved for grace. I think that in our time, in our place, people are hungry for truth and are thirsty for grace. And the Bible tells us that Jesus appears in grace and truth. And so while the circumstances of our day are different than that of Jesus' day, I think the atmosphere is similar. I believe that's why John drew such a big crowd of people. People are hungry and thirsty for God. Maybe they didn't even realize that that's what they were hungry for and thirsty for until they encountered Christ. Mark tells us in Mark chapter 1, verse 9, if you want to look back there in your Bible, Mark tells us that it's in those days. It's in this kind of climate, a climate where people are hungry for God, thirsty for grace, ready for truth, wanting to root their lives in something real and powerful, that Jesus appears. This is how he introduces us to Jesus. In those days, in this kind of climate, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River, Mark 1.9. It's interesting that this is how Mark introduces us to Jesus. This is the first scene in Mark's gospel that we meet Jesus. It's interesting, Jesus coming from Nazareth and Jesus coming to be baptized. I want you to know that you might read that and it might not register much in your brain, but this is scandalous. <laughs> Jesus coming from Nazareth and Jesus coming to be baptized. It's a scandalous way to introduce us to the world-changing king. Now, people have said before that the gospel is scandalous, and it certainly is. People often talk about the cross of Christ as scandalous. Raise your hand if maybe you've heard that phrase before, the scandal of the cross. Yeah, we talk about the cross as scandalous. And that's certainly a scandalous claim that God himself would subject himself to crucifixion, to death, to suffering, that God would do this. That's a scandalous claim. But I want you to know that the whole story of the gospel is a scandalous claim. And it even begins right here with this phrase that Jesus comes from Nazareth. You know, the gospel from beginning to end it doesn't make much sense in human eyes. It's a backwards, shocking, outrageous, upside-down kind of good news that we are to receive. And so as we look at this text this morning, we're going to see that, that this passage, we get introduced to Jesus in a shocking way, and it's going to get more shocking as we go. And so I want, to, I want us to ask this question. Here's the question this morning, if you want to write this down. What is this text revealing to us about God? What is this text this morning revealing to you? God wants to speak something to you this morning about who he is and what he's like. What is this text revealing to us about the very heart of God? What kind of God 
do Christians worship? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, that's the question. What kind of God is the God of the Bible? We're going to see this in three scenes this morning that show us the heart of God. And the first thing, you might say, that's not really a scene, but I'm going to call it a scene, is that Jesus comes from Nazareth. Jesus coming from Nazareth. What does this teach us about God? Did you know that nowhere in the Old Testament does it mention the city of Nazareth? Nowhere in the Old Testament. So this would have been scandalous to some. It would have been outright to others in the, uh, among Israel to say that their king and their Messiah came from Nazareth. Others might have outright dismissed this claim that Christ would hail from a place like Nazareth. Nazareth was a forgotten place. It was near the southern end of Galilee. Nazareth was a town of about 500 maybe a thousand. Some people will say maybe on a good day, uh, you know, maybe it's heyday, 1,200, but really probably more like 500 or a thousand. It's a small little town. It was a poor and condemned place that was really way outside the normal stream of Israelite life. In other words, nobody would go to Nazareth for, many, for, for anything. I want you to know that I grew up in a town of about 800 people. How many of you have ever, ever heard of Hull, Texas? Chris has it. Yeah, so the only, only people that have heard of whole Texas are people that know me. Uh, I grew up in a hick town, in a podunk town, in an off-the-beaten-path, middle-of-nowhere, not-respectable town. And when you're from a place like Hull or a place like Nazareth, you get used to pretending like you are really from somewhere else. Um, I remember when I was in college, I used to meet people for the first time, and they would ask me where I was from, and I would tell them that I was from Houston. And I didn't tell them that I was from Houston because I wanted to lie to them. Um, Houston is it's like 70 miles uh, from Hull. It's not really close. I told them I was from Houston because it's probably, you know, it's the closest large city, and it's probably the only thing that they would have, you know, they, they wouldn't have heard of where I was from anyway, so I just told them that I was from Houston. Um, you don't take a lot of pride when you're from a place like Hull or Nazareth. You don't really boast in your town. In fact, when you're around people that are from more respectable places, <laughs> you maybe feel a little bit of a shame that you're this, uh, you know, podunk kid from this podunk town. I remember feeling that way. In Jesus' day, uh, to be from Nazareth was to be seen as less than. It was to be seen as lowly at best. At worst, it was to be ridiculed and outright hated. Um, John's gospel gives us a pretty clear perspective of how people not from Nazareth felt about people from Nazareth. In John chapter 1, verses 43 through 46, we're told that Jesus is calling up his first disciples. He's gathering his disciples, and he calls a guy named Philip. And uh, he calls Philip to be his disciple, and Philip is overjoyed, and Philip goes and finds his best friend, Nathaniel, and he goes and tells him. And here's what he says. To him. When he finds Nathaniel, he says, We have found him who Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. So he's saying we've found the Messiah, the one that we've all been waiting for, the one that the prophets spoke about, the one that, that, that the law of Moses was telling us would come. And then he goes on and he says, His name is Jesus of Nazareth. He's the son of Joseph. And Philip's response, he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip can't believe it. In fact, somebody, some scholars would even say that this is perhaps even like the closest thing to, to almost like a racial slur. Like, could anything good come from Nazareth? I love the way Eugene Peterson handles this in his translation of the Bible. He says, Nathaniel says, can anything, uh, Nathaniel says, Nazareth, the Messiah, you've got to be kidding me. This is the way that people felt about Nazareth in Jesus' day. I want you to think about this. Think about this. This is where God's Savior King comes from. This is where he grows up in obscurity. 
living as a lowly, poor son of a carpenter. In fact, I think this helps us make sense of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount where he tells us that it is the poor, the meek, the hungry, who will inherit the kingdom of God, the poor in spirit, the hun- those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, those who are persecuted, that he's come to save. What is God revealing to us about himself in Jesus coming to us from a place like Nazareth? Well, I believe that he is revealing to us who it is that he has come for, that Jesus has come from a lowly place for the lowly. Jesus has come for the forgotten. Jesus has come for the broken. Jesus has come for the poor. Now, this is a challenging message for suburban people like you and me to receive. In all of our materialism, in all of our comforts, we are so rich. Even if you don't have much money in your bank account, I want you to know that you are richer than, than the majority of the people across the globe. This is a challenging message for us to reconcile and receive. Jesus comes from lowly, for the lowly, for the poor, for the broken. We need to wrestle with this. If you're here this morning and you feel lowly, if you're here this morning and you feel less than, if you're here this morning and you feel overlooked or forgotten, I want you to know that you are in good company with Jesus of Nazareth. I want you to know that he's near to you. I want you to know that he's not embarrassed by you. He's not put off by you. He's not ashamed of who you are or maybe where you've been or where you're from. He has come near to the lowly. This high and holy God in Jesus takes on flesh. He dwells among us. He's born in a manger in Bethlehem. He's raised and brought up and broken in a broken and poor place like Nazareth. The almighty God has come lowly. And if if we want to identify with him, guess what? then we must embrace our lowly place before him as sinners, as broken people, people poor in spirit, people who are hungry for righteousness and truth. So in the first scene, we're told that God comes lowly. He comes from Nazareth. And then we're told that Jesus is baptized. We're told that he comes to be baptized by John. So if the Messiah, the Son of God, being from a podunk place like Nazareth wasn't shocking enough, Now God's king is baptized. Look back at verse 9 through 11. Text tells us, says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. I want to ask the question, what's happening here as Jesus is being baptized? Well, Mark is bringing us into the tension of Jesus' humanity, Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus' divinity, Jesus, the Son of God, and whom the Father is well-pleased. And Mark is not interested at all in resolving that tension for us right away. That's one of the things we're going to learn about Mark. Mark just grabs us by the collar, collar, and he pulls us face-to-face with the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done, and he leaves it up to us to sort out what we're going to do with that truth. He's not interested at all in helping us resolve the tension. He's totally fine with us having to sit here with the reality that Jesus is the Son of God, yet he comes to be baptized by John, who, by the way, don't forget, John was proclaiming a baptism of what? Forgiveness of sins. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So what is happening here? Is Jesus the Son of God? Does he need forgiveness of sins? I mean, he was from Nazareth, after all. So maybe, what is going on here? Well, this is where the detail 
from the other gospel accounts really help us. Um, In the Gospel of John, we're told that as Jesus is approaching John the Baptist, there's all the crowds are around, and John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching, and he shouts out, Behold! the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And and when John says this, he's using language that would have brought people's minds to Isaiah chapter 42 that spoke of the suffering servant, the Messiah who would come and purify God's people through suffering. Behold, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. So John certainly knew who Jesus was. John the Baptist did. He knew that he was God's Messiah. Matthew's gospel tells us in chapter 3, verse 15, that as Jesus comes into the waters to be baptized by John the Baptist, that John the Baptist is reluctant to to baptize him. He he essentially says to him, the text says that he tries to prevent Jesus, saying, I am the one who needs to be baptized by you. And so it's clear that John the Baptist knows that he is the son of God, the royal son, the king that the psalmist talked about. And so what's going on here? Why is Jesus coming to be baptized? Well, Jesus has not come to be baptized because he is a sinner who needs to repent. He has come to be baptized to show us what kind of king he would be. What kind of king would King Jesus be? He would be one who identifies with sinners in every way, yet without sin. One who eats with sinners and dines with sinners and befriends them, the broken, the outcast. That's the kind of king he would be. He would be a king who would be, in fact, plunged down into the depths of sin and death on behalf of sinners and raised up victoriously on behalf of sinners. That's the kind of king that he would be, a king who identifies with us in every way in our sin. In fact, what happens next affirms all of this. The humanity of Jesus of Nazareth and the divinity of Jesus, the Son of God, is expressed in a mighty act that leaves us stunned. In fact, it might this mighty act that happens next when the heavens are torn open, it might not only leave us stunned, it might leave us with a bit of a Trinity headache, right? You're like, wait, what? Father, Son, Spirit, wait, what's happening? One God, three persons. But it's interesting, what Mark is doing here is he's not at all interested in trying to explain the fact that the God of the Bible is a triune God. He's actually doing something, he's doing something different. What he's doing is he's showing us the activity of Father, Son, and Spirit all present in this moment, as Jesus launches his ministry, we see that the Father speaks. And keep in mind, this is after 400 years of silence since God has last spoken through Malachi. Now the Father speaks as Jesus from Podunk Nazareth is standing in the water with sinners. The Son accomplishes. He's there doing the Father's will. The Spirit descends, moves, empowering the Son. You see, the God of the Bible is one God and three persons, distinct yet one in a trinity. What Mark is doing is he's writing for us here, not helping us understand the trinity, but to make a connection, an important connection that we should all be making in our minds. Do you know that the last time that the Father, Son, and Spirit are this present in activity in the Bible? Do you know the last time? Genesis chapter 1 in creation. Listen to what Tim Keller says about this. In his book, Jesus the King, he writes this, In the creation account, Genesis 1-2, says that the Spirit hovered over the face of the waters. The Hebrew verb here means fluttered. The Spirit fluttered over the face of the waters. To capture this vivid image, the rabbis translated the passage like this. 
and the earth was without form and empty, and the darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God fluttered like a dove. And God spoke, let there be light, and there was light. Keller says in Genesis 1, there are three parties active in the creation of the world. God, God's Spirit, God's Word, through which he creates or accomplishes. And the same three parties are present in Jesus' baptism. The Father, who is the voice, the Son, who is the Word, and the Spirit fluttering like a dove. Mark is deliberately pointing us back to the creation, to the very beginning of history. This is interesting. Why? Why is Mark doing this? What's his point? What is God revealing to us about himself through Jesus' baptism? Well, Keller goes on. Look at what he says. He says, just as the original creation of the world was a project of the triune God, Mark says, so the redemption of the world, the rescue and renewal of all things that is beginning now with the arrival of the king is also a project of the triune God. Here's the point. The creator of the world is also the redeemer of all things. And redemption is breaking into this broken and busted world of sin and death in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth, who comes wading into the waters of sinful humanity. What a beautiful picture that we're given. What a powerful picture. And then Mark wastes no time. He's moving rapidly. He's putting it all in our face. He's saying, who is this Jesus? Who is he? Is he a fool or is he king? Is he a a man who got killed or is he the son of God? Well, Mark wastes no time and he brings us into a third and final scene to help us understand who Jesus is and what Jesus is revealing to us about God, he shows us that the next thing that happens is that Jesus is tempted. Look at verse 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Again, In Mark's gospel, all of this is happening quickly. Mark is not interested in explaining things for us. He's totally fine with us doing the interpreting. In fact, that's his purpose, to put us before Jesus and to ask the question, who is he? And so there are a couple of questions that verse 12 and 13 ought to be bringing up for us. And the first question is, why the wilderness? And so I want you to think about this. Jesus has just launched his ministry. There's Crowds of people that have seen him baptized and have seen this amazing moment. They've heard the voice of God. They've seen Jesus. The heavens torn open. They've heard it. They've seen it. Uh, The other accounts tell us it sounded like thunder. Some skeptics were even like, oh, it wasn't God. It was just a thunderstorm or something. Yet there wasn't a cloud in the sky. There's just been this amazing moment. It's time for Jesus to launch his ministry. He should probably capitalize off all this momentum. That's a word we like to use in the church a lot, by the way, that the Bible isn't very interested in. This momentum. Uh, There's all this momentum. And what happens? He heads off for 40 days into the deep, dark wilderness. It's interesting. It says the Spirit leads him there, which tells us something about Jesus' ministry that we're going to see as we keep moving forward in this book, that Jesus does everything and uh, empowered by and led by the Spirit. He never acts on his own, out on his own autonomous of Father and the Spirit, but he's accomplishing the Father's will by the power of the Spirit. It's also interesting that he goes to the wilderness. Why the wilderness? What is, what is happening here? Well, the wilderness, especially being in the wilderness surrounded by wild animals, was a terrifying idea for the ancient Israelites, okay? And us suburban people are like, oh, let's go out into the woods and see the cute animals. Um, not so much here. That's a place that one would go to die. 
So what is, what is, what is happening here? Well, first and foremost, there's a lot of Old Testament symbolism that this ought to be bringing to mind, especially the fact that Jesus not only goes to the wilderness, but he's there for 40 days, 40 days of temptation in the wilderness. We get all sorts of Old Testament images. You really could kind of pick the image here that most stirs your heart because there's several of them. Maybe the idea of, of the Garden of Eden uh, being surrounded by animals, being tempted by Satan. Okay, here is Jesus. What will he do? Is he standing in Adam's place? Is he going to obey where Adam failed, Adam and Eve failed? We get the idea of maybe 40 days in the wilderness. We think about the Israelites and they're wandering for 40 years in the desert, 40 years in the wilderness that was full of a lot of grumbling and complaining and discontentment with God and turning from God and making idols. What's he going to do? Is he going to obey in the face of temptation in the place of the Israelites? What's going on here? That's exactly what's going on here. Jesus is proving faithful where human beings in God's story have had their biggest failures, where you and I have had our biggest failures for that matter. Matthew's gospel gives us some more detail. He tells us that Satan is specifically tempting Jesus to use his messianic power and authority in a way that was not intended. He says, hey, Jesus, I know you're hungry. Why don't you see, that, see the stone right there? Turn it to bread and eat it. Satisfy your hunger. This is not taking us back to the garden. He says, aren't you the son of God? If you're really the son of God, doesn't it kind of whisper to us, hey, did, did God really say that? That if you eat from that tree? Do you see what's happening here? Do you see what Jesus is doing? He tells us that, um, that he tempts Jesus to use his power for, for ways, that would save, that, ways that would benefit Jesus as opposed to ways that would benefit others. Jesus obeys where Israel fails. Jesus obeys where Adam fails. Jesus in the wilderness is tempted and tried, yet he is faithful where you and I have been found faithless. And why does this matter? Well, first of all, it makes him a sufficient Savior. I want you to hear me. This makes Jesus a sufficient Savior. 1 Peter 3.8 tells us that God gives the righteous for the unrighteous. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ. Jesus is a sufficient Savior. He was tempted and tried and found faithful where we have been faithless. And the scriptures tell us that in this, he gives of his righteousness to those who come to him. What are the implications of this? The implications are this, that if you are in Christ Jesus this morning, when God looks upon you, when he looks down and he sees you right where you are, right as you've come into this place, when he sees you, he is pleased with you. He delights in you. When God looks at you right now in this very moment, if you are in Christ Jesus, he smiles over you. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ that he accrued for you. Isn't that good news? And you might be thinking, well, Jordan, but you don't know what my morning was like. I yelled at my kids a lot. You don't know what my weekend was like. You don't know what I did this weekend. Some of you came into this place this morning reluctant, maybe carrying some shame and some guilt. And I want you to hear me. I want you to hear me. God is not disappointed in you. God does not tolerate you. He's not like, I can forgive you, but I don't really like you. He loves you. He is pleased in you, if you with you if you were in Christ Jesus. He smiles over you. I want you to see Jesus in the wilderness, obeying in the face of temptation. Every temptation that human beings like you and me have experienced, he obeys perfectly, and he credits it all to you as righteousness. 
What a savior. What a savior. What a king who has come lowly, who has identified with us, who has been faithful in the midst of all of our unfaithfulness. What a God. And so it makes him a sufficient savior for us who not only can take away our sins, but can give us righteousness. And it also, Jesus in the wilderness, makes him a sympathetic savior. I want you to hear me again. He's a sufficient savior for you, and he is a sympathetic savior for you. He knows what it is like to experience temptation. He knows what it's like to be bombarded with the lies of Satan that says you don't have enough, you're not enough. Jesus has identified with us in every way in our humanity. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says this. Would you hear this? We do not. Who's we? People who are in Christ by faith. We do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And here's the implication of the fact that Jesus is a sympathetic Savior. The implication here is that we can draw near to him with confidence. We can come to him like little children who are not worried about upsetting their mom or dad, who are not worried about bugging mom or dad. We can come to him. He gets it. He knows it. He loves you, and he's sympathetic toward everything that you're experiencing or carrying this morning. What a Savior, Jesus in the wilderness for us, Jesus from Nazareth, Jesus baptized for us. What do we make of these three scenes in Mark's gospel? Well, this passage is telling us something about Jesus for sure. We've just unpacked all of that that he's come lowly for the lowly, that he identified with sinners in baptism, that he was faithful where we have been faithless. But this passage, it's also saying something to us about us. It's saying something to us this morning about our humanity. It tells us about who we really are, what we're really like. When we stop all the props and the performing and the pretending, when, it gets, when we really get down to who we are and what we're like, it tells us that we as human beings are lowly and we are frail and we are poor in comparison to the greatness and the glory of the Almighty God. We are nobodies from Nazareth compared to the King of glory. It tells us that we are sinners in need of cleansing, that we are even our best righteousness, our best performance, our humanitarian acts are serving at the PTA. The Bible says they're but filthy rags compared to the holiness of God. We are sinners in need of cleansing. And it tells us that we have all been tested and we all have been tempted and we all will continue to be tested and tempted. And apart from Christ, we fail. But what has God done for us in Jesus? He has come lowly to the weak and to the broken, to the sinner and to the sufferer. He has been tested and tempted in every way, yet without sin. He comes to save us by identifying with us in every way. I want to ask you as we close this morning, where are you with God today? Where are you? You. Not your neighbor, not your spouse. Where are you with God today? Will you receive what he is trying to show you about himself this morning? Will you receive what he's trying to show you about his heart for you this morning? Will you receive what he's trying to show you about what he has done for you this morning? Would you let his grace and his goodness and his kindness melt away anything that is keeping you from receiving his love right now in this room this morning? Would you just receive it? Would you receive his heart for you? I know that some of you are carrying burdens and weights today, and it feels heavy. There are things that are happening in your life 
that are outside of your control. There are things that are happening in your life that feel painful and broken, that feel unfair. You are carrying sufferings, heavy burdens and weights. Amen. There are some of you here, here this morning that are struggling sin, struggle, struggles and sins. You are entangled. Maybe for you, you're the sins and the struggles in your life are devouring you. Like you're starting to become aware of that. Of like, I, I, I think that, that it's time for me to maybe get honest about where I really am. You're entangled in sins and struggles. There are others of you this morning that I, I know without a, without a doubt that you are exhausted and you are tired. You've been trying to be your own savior, to create your own righteousness, to prove your own worth. Whether you are carrying heavy burdens, whether you are entangled in sin and struggles, whether you're exhausted and you're burnt out and you're tired trying to be your own savior and king, I want you to know that this is the human experience, to be heavy laden and burdened, to be stuck in sins and struggles, to be worn out and tired. That is the human experience apart from the freeing and redeeming grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. It's heavy laden, sin and struggles, burn out and tired, maybe save enough money and retire and die. That's it. That's the human experience. But thanks be to God who has sent his son Jesus of Nazareth who came into the waters on our behalf, who was tempted in every way yet without sin to make him a sufficient and sympathetic savior for people like you and me so that we could be set free from the curse of sin, death, and brokenness. Amen? There is one who has come lowly to the lowly. There is one who has identified with sinners like you and me. There is one who is a perfect Savior, and I want to invite you to turn to him this morning. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 29 says this. Would you receive this? I want to invite you to stand. Would you just receive this truth? Hear the words of Jesus. Hear the words of Jesus of Nazareth. Hear the words of Jesus who entered into the waters with sinners, Jesus who was in the wilderness. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a Savior. What a Savior full of truth, full of grace. I want to invite you to turn to him this morning. I want to invite you to worship with us. The worship team's going to come up. We're going to sing one more song. We're going to take communion together. I want you to know that I'm going to be in the back, and I would love to just pray for you. If you say, man, I'm struggling, I'm heavy laden, I'm weary, I'm tired, I'm stuck in sin, I'd love to just pray for you. We're going to sing. We're going to take communion together. We're going to worship. We're going to turn to a God who has come near to us in Jesus. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.